Romans 8, verse 28. That's the verse we're going to look at tonight. And we read, that, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father, we know that many of us have favorite verses, and there's popular verses, verses that we've heard over the years. And sometimes we can take for granted that we really understand them. But, Lord, we need to be open to hear just what the truth is in that word. So we ask that you will speak to us and make your word clear to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's amazing sometimes, is it not, the way that things work out in life. So here's a true story for you. I want to just say the one this morning wasn't a true story, but this is. A man called Frank owned a dog, and it was a beautiful golden retriever. And one morning he looked out of the kitchen window and saw his faithful, obedient dog sitting in his back garden. He looked a little closer, though, and saw that it seemed to have something in its mouth. He decided he had to investigate, so he went outside, and lo and behold, it did have something in its mouth. His pet, his neighbor's pet, prized and greatly loved rabbit, now dead, very dead. Frank was stunned, and his brain started going here, there, and everywhere. What was this going to do for neighborly relations? He'd known that there was a, a little gap in the fence. But it was so small he could hardly get his arm through it and he'd never imagined his dog could get through. But it had, obviously, it had. What was he going to do? Well, finally, he decided on a plan. Carefully, he prized the rabbit from his dog's mouth. Then he put it into the kitchen sink and washed off a load of dirt and debris. Then carefully wrapping it in a towel, he carried it upstairs to his bedroom, where using his wife's hairdryer, he blow-dried it. I'm sure it looks lovely, by the way. But finally, that night, late in the dead of night, Frank crawled over the fence, slipped across his neighbor's garden stealthily, put the dead rabbit back in its hutch and then slithered back through the darkness the way that he came. When at last he got back into his kitchen, he breathed a huge sigh of relief. At last, it was all over. Mission accomplished. You can imagine then the shock that he got the next day when answering a loud knock at the door, he found his neighbour standing there, dead rabbit in hand, and obviously, absolutely furious. Frank, he said, we have got a real sickle in our neighbourhood. Really? Frank tentatively replied, what makes you say that? Well, he said, my rabbit died three days ago and I buried it and now somebody has dug it up, cleaned it all up 
and stuck it back in my hutch. We're talking a real sickle here, Frank. It's funny, the way that life, the way that circumstances sometimes work out. But it's not always funny. For instance, I remember so well when I first heard Bat Gary Brotherston share his story. And then at the time he shared this story, he was a smart, clean-cut young man in his early 30s. He just looked so innocent and so much younger than he actually was. Now, when he shared, even though I knew something of what had happened, still I was shocked when he told of how he'd stabbed someone to death in a fight, how he'd murdered a man. Now, Gary expressed his repentance he was full of remorse and he spoke of how he'd taken this man's life, of how this man had been a husband, a father, a son, a brother, of the impact that his death had had on so many others, including Gary himself. For he was just out of prison, having served a life sentence. But in prison, the gospel was preached to him. In prison, he was brought face to face with his sin and also with the offer of forgiveness of a new birth, of a new life through faith in Jesus Christ. Gary responded to that offer. And when he came out of prison, he became an evangelist and he's now a minister of the Free Church of Scotland in Bishop Briggs. And that sounds wonderful. And it is wonderful. But let me pose a question to you now. Imagine the man that Gary murdered was a Christian. And imagine that that man was your husband, or your father, or your son, or your brother. What then, in these circumstances, would Romans 8, 28 mean to you? This verse, which some writers have likened for the Christian to a pillow on which to rest our weary heads. Would it be that for you? Well, let's ask some simple questions of this most famous of verses and see, see if we can get a clear understanding of it. If we can move it from what too often it is, a comforting but misunderstood, ill-thought-through platitude that soon begins to wobble and shake, when the winds of life come blowing our way, to make it instead, to instead be the rock in our life that enables us to stand strong in our faith, no matter what life brings to us. So first of all, what does it mean? Yes, when we say that God is at work in our lives, what does that mean? How should we expect to see that working its way out? in our life circumstances. Well, let me just say to begin that I don't think that the familiar AV translation, that all things work together for good, is the best here. In fact, it's far from it. For the impression that that gives is that everything ultimately will kind of resolve itself into a pattern of good. But that's just not so. Sometimes the things that happen to us are just plain bad. 
And these things in themselves, that is the actual physical circumstances of our life, the emotional aftermath we're left to deal with, etc. These things are bad as well. And to try to call these things in themselves good, well, that is just not true. And we know it. And what this leaves us with is a, an equivalent of the kind of fatalistic approach we often hear from the world around us. Everything will turn out fine in the end, but it's just not so. And we know that from our own life experience, or perhaps from the life experience of others. We know that. So the AV translation is not the best here then. In this instance, the NIV and others are far better. Verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. You see, God is at work in all situations. Not, though, to necessarily make all these situations good, but for the good of those who love him. You see, he takes all the things that happen to us in our life, the good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly, the joyful and the sad. He takes all these things into his sovereign purposes. And as our hearts are open to him, as our lives are submitted to him, he is at work again. Not to make what has happened to us perhaps good, not to necessarily make the here and now circumstances that we're living in good, but he is at work for our good. And by his sovereign power, as we seek him, he will bring good into our lives and from our lives. That though brings us on to our second question. What does it achieve? When we say that God is at work in our lives for good, what is this good? Let me make things here as clear as I can. I think the problem with so many of us is that we are to this world, too earthbound in our thinking about good. You see, when we think about good coming into our lives, when we think about us experiencing that which is good in life, what do we kind of quickly think about? I think most of us, we think about being happy and healthy and wealthy. <coughs> we think about having a, a safe and secure and prosperous life. We think of having enough of this world's good to be comfortable with a little bit extra on top. Now these things can be good in the right place. Though if these things become the focus of our lives, they can also be corrupted and can become bad. But you see, when God thinks of good, when he thinks of good in its ultimate sense, God's perspective is very different. Because he's thinking about that which is spiritual. He's thinking of that which is eternal. The good that he wants to achieve in our lives is to make us in character more like Jesus and to make us more and more ready for the life of heaven. 
God wants to work in us in the power of the Spirit in all of our life experiences, good, bad, and whatever in between. And as we turn to him, then he will, by his sovereign power, he is able, he can and he will, if we turn to him, bring life's greatest good, Christ's likeness, out of any experience life brings our way. What does it say? In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. You see how different that is, though, from the everything is going to be good, everything's going to work out fine scenario. I mean, for instance, try saying that to a North Korean concentration camp victim of today. Because right now, as we sit in here, nice and cosy and comfortable, multitudes in North Korea are being starved and beaten and worked to death right now, simply because they are Christians. Now, how do you think they would respond if you went to them tonight and said, God's going to make this good for you. God's going to make sure everything works out fine. It's all going to be good. I think if you told them that, that they would tell you stories of many of their friends and family and neighbours for whom in this world, by this world's standards, things didn't ever work out fine. They would tell you stories of people they loved who died in rags, hungry and cold, and worked beyond the limit of their endurance and strength. If, though, instead, you went to them and asked, has God drawn near to you in your trials? Have you learned from him? Has he touched your life? Has he changed you? Do you have now a longing for heaven the like of which you never had before? If you ask that question, then I believe you would find many who would tell you that I got to the end of myself. I had to be taken to the end of myself. But then I turned to God. And this is what God has done for me. He has brought good in this sense into my life and from my life. And this good, his good, is better by far than that which this superficial world calls good. Now let me just share a man's life experience with you that I think illustrates best what I'm, I'm trying to say tonight. And this is what he says. I'm a Negro, just 23 years of age but I'm ready to go. Just this week, I had a dream that I'll carry with me all the way to the chair. I was on my way to heaven and Jesus was with me, but I was taking four steps to his two. He asked me why I was going so fast. I told him I was eager to get there. And then I was there, surrounded by numerous angels. Some might think that strange talk from a man who came to jail, an atheist. You'll understand better when I tell you how I met God early one morning. Not long after I was placed behind bars, March 23rd last year, a woman of my own race, Mrs. Flora Jones of Olivia Baptist Church, invited me to attend 
a prisoner's gospel service. I was playing cards with some friends at the time and I laughed at her. I don't even believe there is a God, I boasted, and went on playing cards. She continued pleading with me. Actually, I felt so sinful that I didn't want to know about God, even if he existed. Suddenly, something she was saying caught my attention. If you don't believe in God, just try this little experiment. Before you go to sleep tonight, ask him to waken you at any time. Then ask him to forgive your sins. She had real faith and it got a hold of me. I didn't go to the service, but I remembered the experiment. God, I mumbled as I lay on my bed, wake me up at 2.45 a.m. if you're real. Outside, it was wintry. Windows on the inside were frosted. For the first few hours, I slept soundly. Then my sleep became restless. Finally, I was awake. I was warm and sweating, although the cell was cool. All was quiet except for the heavy breathing of several prisoners and the snoring of a man nearby. Then I heard footsteps. It was a guard making his regular checks. I stopped him. What time is it? He looked at his watch. Fifteen to three. That's the same as 2.45, isn't it? I asked. He grunted and walked on. He didn't see me climb from my bed and fall on my knees. I don't know exactly what I said to God that night, but I asked him to forgive me, a murderer and a sinner. He saved me that night. And my faith is in his mercy, offered through his son, Jesus Christ. I had said I was going to beat up another prisoner the next day. As I went towards him, he backed away. I don't want to fight you, he said. You used to be a boxer. I don't want to fight either, I said. I just want to put things right between us. Later it was whispered round that I was putting on an act, trying to save myself from the chair. My case did come up later before the Illinois Supreme Court, but they upheld the death sentence. Sure, that jolted me, but I haven't lost my faith in God. I know he will go with me. Peter Tannis, a prison missionary, takes up this story and describes Ernest Gaither, this prisoner's last hours on earth. And this is what he says. I was admitted to Ernest's cell about an hour before midnight. The atmosphere seemed charged with his guards talking to try and keep his mind off the midnight journey, but everything they said was strained and meaningless, the kind of thing you say when you don't know what to say. As I entered, Ernest smiled and greeted me. A Negro chaplain was reading with him from the Bible and he gave it to me and asked me to read. I selected the first chapter of Philippians and Ernest leaned forward intently as I read, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. 
A moment later, a black hood was slipped over his head, and he began the last mile. At each side were guards, both visibly nervous. Ernest sensed it. What are you fellows shaking for? I'm not afraid. Finally, at 12.03 a.m., the first of three electrical shocks flashed through his body. By 12.15, five doctors had one by one confirmed his death. But I knew that the real Ernest Gaither still lived. Only his body was dead. As I left the jail, I thought of that verse that he loved so well. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. And again, let's be clear here. What this man, Ernest Gaither, did was not and could never be considered good or right. And what this led to, what this resulted in, in his life in human terms, at the practical, physical level, cannot be considered good either. I mean, getting the electric chair isn't good, no matter what way you look at it. But this man came to Christ. He put his trust in God's gift of mercy, of forgiveness, offered in Christ. And then God in his sovereign power came in and he used the circumstances of this man's life, bad as they were, but he used them to achieve the greatest good of all, to make him more and more like Jesus. He used his life as a living illustration of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And then he took him to heaven to be with him. Now what good can be better than that? You see, the world would expect and want this story to end. This man became a Christian, then had his death sentence repealed, had his conviction overturned and went on to live a long and happy and prosperous life. Now maybe, sometimes, that's what God also does. But that doesn't change the fact that what's really good, what really matters is what God does here. Using whatever comes into our life to make us more and more like Jesus. To make us more and more ready, fit, equipped to go and to be with him in his heaven. We've asked two questions. There's one last one. That is, who is it for? Who does God, who will God do this work in? Who will God work in to turn this life's experience, not just the good and the happy things, but the most terrible and awful things as well, who will God work in to do these things, to turn them into life's greatest good? Verse 28 tells us that this is for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. See, this is for those who love God. This is for those who've been brought back into a relationship of love with God through trusting in Jesus Christ. Trusting in Jesus. Trusting that he's the son of God. 
trusting that he died in our place for our sin, trusting that his death is enough, that it's sufficient to pay the price of our sin and to bring us back into a relationship with God right now that will last for all eternity. And then following this, then turning to God, when we live this Christian life, whatever life brings our way, turning to God, because that's what we've got to do in order to release the power and resources of God into our life. So I want to say to you tonight, tonight, do you want your life to make sense? Tonight, do you want to find life's real meaning and purpose? Tonight, do you want to know life's greatest good? Does that attract you? Does that speak to your heart? Is then God calling you tonight? Is he calling you into that relationship? If so, I say to you, respond to him. Give your life to him. That he might begin in you tonight. The mighty work he wants to do in you. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you that you are concerned about the good for each person here. You want us to know life's greatest good. You want us to know life through Christ. You want us to know meaning and purpose. You want us to know that our lives matter, that all that happens in our life matters. You want us to know that you're ready to do something great in us. Father, help us tonight to put our trust in you. This we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.